Turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 2. Excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 2. The theme has been God's judgment. Wonderful topic to have to talk about. Where Peter, speaking for God, pledges destruction and judgment, not only on false teachers, but on all those who are ungodly and all those who rebel against God. I warned you before we started this chapter especially, that this was not a chapter for the faint of heart, that it was not a chapter for those who come to church to hear something soothing and easy. This is not easy. In fact, this is a reason why some commentators say the book of Second Peter is not taught often. Not taught often because of its picture here of judgment and hell and um, that particular subject matter. And um, many avoid this chapter, this book, for different reasons. But uh, the point is, we are considering it because we teach through it expositionally, and it's our topic. It's where we come to. We're not going to overlook anything in God's revealed word. I wouldn't even teach on this subject, quite frankly, because it's such a difficult subject, and it's just, it's just hard. It's hard to talk about and not feel pain for so many who are in hell this very minute. And if that doesn't break your heart, my goodness, you don't understand what this is about. So this is a difficult, difficult subject to address and to to speak of, but it's uh, something that's so important that we need to to consider. Folks, listen to this. Just listen to me first before I get into this chapter. If, If there were no hell, we would not need Christianity. Do you understand? If there were no judgment of God hanging over humanity, we would not need Christ coming into the world. We would not need Jesus. We would not need Christianity. But it's because of that judgment that all humanity is under. It's because of our sin against a holy God that we are under his condemnation and judgment. Your greatest enemy in the universe as a sinner is God, not the devil. It's God. Jesus came on a rescue mission to rescue you and I from God and his wrath. That is our message. That is what Christianity is. And as unpleasant as this is to talk about, it's the reason for everything we do. It's redemption. We must not avoid the subject as difficult and as hard as it is to say. Because that's what hangs over everybody apart from Christ. Everybody apart from Christ is a rebel against God. Everybody apart from Christ is an enemy of God. Everybody apart from Christ is condemned by God. The wrath of God hangs over, Romans 1.18, hangs over all humanity in their rebellion. That's why the gospel is such good news. Because Jesus came to rescue sinners. He came to rescue you and I from this judgment. And people want to say to me and you at times, my God would never send anybody to hell. And your response and my response is always the same. Well, then you don't worship the God of the Bible. You worship your God of your own making. 
because the God of the Bible is a God who is holy and just, and he will have a response to those who sin against him. Philosophically, you can argue this away in your own mind and say it's not an eternal hell. Well, well, I got news for you. Jesus says it's an eternal hell. Eternal life, eternal hell. You can be philosophical about it and kind of debate and say, well, a loving God doesn't do those kinds of things. How can you think that about God being that way? You can be philosophical about it. I believe it because it's revealed truth. We believe what's revealed, not what feels right to us. We preach what's revealed, not what is popular opinion. We preach what is revealed to us in God's word. This is our authority. This is what informs us as to what is true and what is not true. And as hard as it is to talk about and think about, it's the reality. It's why we even gather here. It's why we even exist as as Christians. It's because God reached down in our state of of condemnation and redeemed us from that pit. And though Many hear this and mock it because, oh, that's ancient stuff. Oh, that's old stuff. That's fire and brimstone preaching or whatever they want to say. Well, so be it. So be it. It's too important of a matter to just cave in on when it hangs over all humanity. And it should drive us to greater concern and greater love for those around us to preach the truth to them, not to lie to them, not to soften it, not to make up some message that just sort of gathers a crowd, but something, but the truth. Because he came to die for sin. He came because we have a sin problem. He came and we must address sin because that's what he did. He came to save sinners, not just to improve my my own lot, my life and my pleasures and make life more exciting for me or anything like that. He came to redeem me and to change me and to make me a worshiper. <laughs> but primarily he had to get my sin out of the way and that required him dying on a cross because the wages of sin is death. And if, I, if he doesn't go if he doesn't pay my hell for me, then I will have to face it. And so, let's look at this passage and, and with great solemnness, but also with great encouragement that Peter would speak for God so boldly. He does not, he does not mince words. He does not, he, he's, he's convincing a people of something. He's convincing his audience of something. He's convinced of this. It's truth he's saying to us. We must read it that way and proclaim it to others that way. You see in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where sort of the portrait of false teachers was introduced, what this is what they're like, and he gave sort of some information about them. In verse 1, 2, and 3, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them. Notice this, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They're going to pay for that. 
Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment, get this, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God has already set their judgment in motion. God is taking full note of what they're doing. And they will be judged. And to prove that God will judge them, Peter says there's historical precedence for this. There's historical precedence that God is a God of judgment. Verse 4 and following. For if, insert the word since, if in the, in, the, in the idea of since, for since God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's one historical precedent. Two, number five, verse five, and if God, insert, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's the second historical precedence, the destruction of the ancient world by a flood. Six, and if he condemned, and since he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if, and since he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You got all these if statements and then you have your then statement, your main point, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. I want you to think about the word temptation just for a moment. Perosmos, it's, it's the idea for trial, for temptation. You always understand its meaning and interpretation into the English by its context. In this context, it's talking about judgment. So this would be used the very same way we would use it in Revelation, I think I got this right, 3.10, Revelation 3.10 for God will protect us through that hour of judgment, that hour of testing. That's what this word should say. I don't think temptation is the best word. Testing, this, that, that hour of judgment. You're getting to ready to go into the book of Revelation to all these judgments that are going to be unleashed on the earth. God will protect you and keep you and preserve you during that hour of judgment, that hour of testing. That's a better way to interpret that word. So he's talking there about the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, those who are believers from that judgment, from that time of judgment, that time of testing, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's his main point here. These three historical precedents to prove his main point that God is the God of judgment. Always has been. His character has not changed. He has not softened. He has not air-conditioned hell. He's not done any of that. And so, verse 4 we looked at last week. That was the first historical precedent. I told you that was about the angels, the fallen angels. Genesis 6, 1 through 2, 3. That was those angels who went, who came down and cohabitated with human women. Fallen angels, human women, to corrupt the human race. And God took those angels, those fallen angels, and put them in the abyss. And one day they'll be thrown to the lake of fire. Point 
If God would do that to his exalted creatures called angels, those who are created for specific purposes, if God would do that to these exalted beings called angels, then he will do it to anybody else who opposes him. He will do it to anybody else who rebels against him. He will do it to anybody else who sins against him. Secondly, we look at the second point here, and this has to do with the flood. This is an incident where God drowned the entire human race except for eight people. Millions of people lived on the earth at that time, it's believed, and they were plunged into eternity. Only eight people were rescued. Maybe people think, well, just because we have the popular view, maybe people think just because we have the view that all the rest of humanity believes, you Christians believe that way, you're so narrow, you are so, you are so minority, your view can't be right. Look at the masses and what they believe. And that may have been the attitude here, oh, you, Noah, you are so narrow, The rest of humanity doesn't think like that. There's just something about a security in the masses, security in the, I'm with the crowd, and we don't think that way. So God judged a large number of people in the flood. Verse 5 says, And he did not spare the ancient world, Turn to Genesis 6 for just a moment. Hold your hand in 2 Peter 2. Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, I did with you last week. This is when we talked about the sons of God, those angels who cohabitated with human women. They produced an offspring that was very evil, further corrupting the human race. That's verses 1 and 2. And Then you come down to verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It wasn't that he was just doing bad things. He thought bad things. Sin is much deeper than our actions. You understand that. I can justify myself by all the things I have not done. But when you start talking about what I'm thinking in my heart, I'm guilty. The thoughts and intentions of his heart were evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked down on the earth and behold, it was corrupt This is verse 12, I'm sorry if I didn't tell you that. Verse 12, God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold I'm about to destroy them from the earth. Angels corrupted the human race, God decides not to spare the ancient world. God is never going to allow anyone to get away with with opposing him. Peter's point, that's Peter's point. Society is caught up in that, isn't it? The broad way. Everybody feels safe because I'm doing what everybody else is doing. It says God preserved Noah. Noah, verse 9 of Genesis 6, if you're still in Genesis, verse 6. 
These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. When he says Noah walked with God, when Noah says Noah was a righteous man, understand this, that means that Noah was a man who had a right relationship with God. He had faith in God. He's in that hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11. Faith, faith in God. The basis of his righteousness, though, is Christ. You understand this? If you take the timeline of God's revelation, Christ has not come yet. He's way down there on the timeline. Noah's way back here. Faith has always been the means of our salvation. Faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Noah believed God. He was reckoned to him as righteousness. Understand that. The basis of that for all humanity, for all history, is Jesus Christ. He didn't have that revealed content way back here in Genesis chapter 6. That is to come. He knew God was a rescuer. God was a savior. But he didn't know the content of a man named Jesus dying on a Roman cross. He didn't know that. That's the content of that faith. That content became more and more evident with revelation as God revealed truth. In a sense, the basis of Noah's salvation was Christ, which hadn't happened yet. In the mind of God, it certainly happened. But on a timeline, it had not happened. Therefore, you know what you say? Noah was saved on credit. It's what's to come. God could justify him by his faith because of what Christ was going to do. So faith is always the issue. Old Testament, New Testament. Content changes from old to new as God's revelation is laid out to us. He says he was blameless. He had a consistent testimony before people. He walked with God. He was a man of faith. He built this ark. It never rained before. It took him 120 years. He did that. He was not near an ocean. He was not near any bodies of water. There were no oceans. And it was unpopular, no matter how unpopular. And so this gets us sometimes. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's got a small book on the sermons he preached through Second Peter. And one of his points in those book, his book is that just think about this. Just think about how it is to go against the crowd. That's, isn't that a hindrance to many people? I don't want to go against the crowd. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. Imagine eight of you to a millions who are going the other way. Christianity always goes against the grain. Believing in God always goes against the grain of culture. And there will be mocking. And as I was telling our, our new members class this morning, we've gone through a season in our country where you used to be very culturally acceptable to be called a Christian. But now it's becoming less and less. And the mocking will increase. And I believe false believers will start to drop off. I believe the tares will start to drop off. They're not going to hang in there for persecution. 
They're not going to hang in there and be ridiculed. He was a preacher of righteousness that says that. I don't think he spent every day just preaching verbally like I'm doing to you right now. I think every time he hit a nail, it was judgment, judgment, judgment. Repent, repent, repent. You follow what I'm saying? Just building the ark itself was a message that you better repent because judgment is coming. You stand condemned under the hand of God and you need to repent. Repent or you're going to be swept away in the wrath of God. So he was in an extreme minority. We find ourselves in a minority for sure, becoming more of a minority all the time. But you know what, this is an example here. God always has an elect remnant. He's always got a remnant. You see that throughout the Bible. Always a remnant of faithful people going against the grain of the world. And just like Noah, he proclaimed the truth, he lived out the truth. People knew that guy, that guy follows God. I like what it says in Matthew 24. Let me read this to you. Matthew 24, you can look it up if you want, but Matthew 24, 37. Listen to this. Jesus says this. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. When Jesus comes in his second coming, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you hear that? They were just doing normal things, getting married, raising children, raising their family, doing all the normal things of life. And then, and then the rain came. Then the judgment will come. And the floods came in Noah's day. And the horrors of people beating on the ark. Beating on the ark. God was so, and this is, this is our culture, God was so irrelevant God was so, I don't care about God. He's not part of my life, and I don't want to be part of my life. I just want to live independent of him. A lot of people aren't hostile necessarily to God. They just neglect him. They want nothing to do with him. They just want to live life going through the daily routines of life. Wake up one day regretting that they did not listen to your testimony, listening to you pleading with them to turn to Christ, listening, they were going to regret pleading, that regret that you, they did not heed your pleading. That is a horrible thought to me, folks. That's a horrible thought to me. Remember that scene Jesus talked about, the the guy that wanted to go back and warn his brothers. Wanted to go back and warn his brothers. Can I go back and tell my brothers so they don't come to the same fate that I've got here in hell or Hades? There'll be an awareness. They'll have a total awareness. 
The whole world was judged except for Noah and his family because they got on the ark. That ark, I've told you in a previous study in 1 Peter, that ark is what we got, right? In Christ. He's our ark. He's the one that shields us from the wrath of God. He's the one that protects us and preserves us from the wrath of God. Christ is the only ark there is. There is no other ark. There's no other way to escape the judgment. It's but through Christ. And it didn't just rain that day. Water came up from the depths. Probably hot water came up from the depths. The canopy canopy that was covering the earth um, collapsed and you had moisture coming from everywhere. Moisture coming from everywhere. And for the first time it rained and floods opened up and the sky just poured out. Horrible, horrible. Next time it won't be that way, but that's chapter 3 of Peter. Next time it won't be a flood. But we'll, turn, we'll see that next time in, in chapter 3. The third historical precedent for God judging the ungodly is, the, is Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. 2.6, and if, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. There were actually five cities, just mentions these two, that were involved in that particular judgment. And they were judged because of the homosexual behavior of the city. These false teachers that Peter is talking about, if you're, are we back in Second Peter now? Or did, I, did I get you out of Genesis and... I know I get you everywhere and I forget where I left you. But if you look at verse 2, they were sensual. Verse 10, these false teachers indulged the flesh. Verse 14, eyes full of adultery. Verse 18, fleshly desires. See that? These men were immoral. These men in Sodom were immoral outside the legitimate, uh, excuse me, the legitimate, legitimate ways in marriage of a man and a woman. And God judged these cities because of their sexual immorality and sexual perversion. And he will, folks, he will judge anyone. He will judge anyone who lives in an unrepentant lifestyle of sexual immorality. Fornication, homosexuality, or any other sexual sin. And then he talks about Lot being delivered, which is... We'll talk about it in just a moment. But these were well-known cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, 20 times this judgment is mentioned in, in, the, other places in the Bible, other places in the Bible. It's kind of a, a point of judgment. For when God, when God is talking about judgment or when, when Christ is talking about judgment, he goes back just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16 says they... This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Rebellion, arrogance, all those things. Turn to Genesis 19. Genesis 19. You know this story. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the story itself, but you're familiar with this. 
Genesis 19 tells us that God is going to destroy, tells us the, the, the scene of God destroying these cities. Genesis 18, Genesis 18, Abraham says to these angels who end up destroying the city, he says to them, if you can find 50 righteous people in the city, will you not destroy it? Oh yes, if we can find 50 righteous, we won't destroy it. How about if you can only find 40 righteous? Oh yeah, if we can find 40, we won't destroy it. How about if we can find 30? How about if we can find 10? Yes, if we can find 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, we will not destroy the city. Well, guess what? They found three and they destroyed it because there weren't even 10. He sends two angels. God sends two angels, Genesis 19, to Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot and his family. That's the reason. They meet Lot at the gate. Lot is standing there at the gate. He sees these angels. He doesn't know they're angels. They're just two men who are in the form of men. They come to the city. Lot invites them into his house. They say, no, we'll sleep in the square. Lot says, no, don't do that. You must come into my house. And that's what they do. Those angels who are in the form of men go to Lot's house. Look at verse 4. Before they lay down, notice, before those men, those men who are angels lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surround the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called out to Lot and said to him, we are the men Excuse me, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. They wanted to have immoral relations with these men. They were pressing on the door. The angels blind them. You know what they do? They keep pressing. That's lustful desire. Controlled by their lustful desire to get in that door to break it down. Jude 7 says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality, they went after strange flesh, are exhibited as examples and undergoing a punishment, excuse me, a punishment of eternal fire. Not just temporal fire, but eternal fire. That's Jude 7. Strange flesh. Angels, they thought these angels were male. It was male, desiring male. Strange flesh, not the natural affection of a man on a woman in marriage. Gross immorality. Verse 6 continues. He reduced it to ashes. Fire and brimstone. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 6 of 2 Peter. I need to give, I'm going to give everybody a couple of my notes before every sermon. <laughs> Sorry about that. 2 Peter 2, verse 6. He re- destruction by reducing them to ashes. Pompeii. You remember Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius, A.D. 79. That city was destroyed by that volcanic eruption. Most of the people, I read this, most of the people died by the gases, you know, inhaling the gases from that eruption. That's how most of the people died. Eventually, they were certainly covered in the ash. They were covered in 30 feet of ash. 
Do you know that they never found that city until the 1700s? They could not find it. They didn't, it was accidentally discovered, the city of Pompeii. It was a city that was basically wiped from the earth. You couldn't find it. And then and all of a sudden it's found underneath all this ash heap from centuries, 1,700 years. It's a city that never existed again. It was near Naples, Italy. It never existed again. That is what we're talking about with Sodom and Gomorrah. The difference is Sodom and Gomorrah have never been found. They have a general idea over there around the Dead Sea somewhere, and they dug and dug and dug and dug. East side, west side, north side, south side. They dug everywhere, and they cannot find the city. God wiped it off the earth, reducing it to ashes. This was a once very fruitful region. If you go to Israel, it's now a very desolate region. Why these cities? Notice in verse 6, to make them an example. See that? To make them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. That's the reason. Why these cities? So they would be an example. Ongoing testimony to the world and to every person that would ever live. Every society that would ever live. Let me just tell you what Luke 17 says. Luke 17, 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot, Jesus says. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven. They were just doing the normal things of life. Nobody thought this was judgment day. Nobody thought fire and brimstone were going to rain down on them. Let's just go about our normal fleshly pursuits, our normal daily routines. Let's just go about life as normal. There was not even a hellfire and brimstone preacher in town. The only person that was righteous in the city, we're told in this passage, was Lot, and he just left because God rescued him and his daughters. His wife eventually, as you know the story, she looked back. She still had a thing for Sodom, evidently. She looked back. And then Lot and his two daughters went onto the mountains. In Jude 7, I read it to you a while ago. This was an eternal judgment. Some people want to say hell is not eternal. You got a problem. Jude says eternal judgment. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 25, some go to eternal life, the sheep go to eternal life, the goats go to eternal hell. Eternal. You know what? You know what I was thinking about? It's 4,000 years ago that those people in Sodom and Gomorrah were put into hell or put into the place of Hades which prepares them for eventual lake of fire. And they have been there for 4,000 years. And you think about how many civilizations have come and gone. How many things have happened in 4,000 years and those people are still there. Still there. You and I have been living our life in our generation and they're still there. I don't want anybody to go there and join them. 
I don't. And I pray nobody in this room is headed in that direction. And the only reason I can tell you you won't go there is because of faith and trust in Christ as your shield, as your ark, as your sin bearer, as your substitute who took hell for you. I have got so much I want to say about Lot. I'm just going to say just a little bit, okay? Because I would not have believed this had I not read it in 2 Peter. If he rescued righteous Lot, what? If I just had the Old Testament, there's nothing I would say about him that was righteous. He wanted the best land over Abraham. He chose to live in Sodom, never moved out. When those men were pressing on the door, he offered to give them his daughters. What's that? He gets up in the mountains and gets drunk and is seduced by his own daughters. What's going on? And you say he's righteous? Righteous Lot, he calls him. I will say this again, once again. The only reason anybody is declared righteous in the courtroom of God is by faith. And in their content, it's faith in a saving God. And I will say that that faith is also based on credit to what Christ would one day do. And if God says he was righteous, it means God had declared him righteous. He did demonstrate in his relationship with Abraham that he was sensitive to some of the things of God. He did want to protect those angels. I mean, I'm looking for things. You get it? I'm looking for things. But... He did want to leave. He didn't look back. He believed the angels, the message of the angels. So there are some signs there that were not given in Scripture of other things possibly. And we're told here that he was grieved by the unrighteousness of the city. That's one sign of a Christian. I love righteousness. I hate sin. That's how you know you're a Christian. I love what God loves and I hate what God hates. I'm told that right here, right? Oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, while living among, felt his righteous, his righteous soul was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. That's a sign of a Christian. I live in a culture like that, don't you? You do too. We look around us and we're, we're, we're tormented. So he's righteous. He's righteous. Peter calls him Righteous despite his spiritual shortcomings. You know, I'm thankful for God that he declares me righteous and then does not go on from there and require that my behavior be perfect afterwards. You follow what I'm saying? I may be declared righteous, folks, in justification, but I know my sanctification is not always that pretty. And I would hate to be a character in the Bible and have all my faults forever recorded. Right? So... That's how you're right with God is faith in Christ. That's the only way. I'm not talking about just an easy believism where you assent to some facts. I'm talking about a faith that produces a repentant heart, a faith that produces a desire to embrace Christ over your sin. A regeneration that would take place of crying out to God to regenerate and change my heart that I might desire you more than I desire anything else. Especially as I look at my culture caving in around me. Oh God, don't let me be swept up in that. 
Verse 9, I'll close with this. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Are you still, are you still in 2 Peter? Yeah. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the hour of testing the trial. He demonstrated that in Lot. He demonstrated that in the eight people in the flood, Noah and his family. He demonstrated that he can do that. These people who are reading this are probably wondering, God, we're living in an evil world. These false teachers are popular. There's ungodliness all around us. That's what Peter's readers are probably thinking. Are we going to get swept up in that? Are we going to be overcome by all of that? Uh, No, he preserves you. He He knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment under punishment means they go to a place called Hades and Revelation 20 the last day lake of fire just like the angels are in a compartment of hell right now called the abyss Revelation 20 lake of fire Hades is a Hades is a compartment of hell waiting for that final judgment. It's a place of torment, yes, but there's a final torment that's far worse. You don't need to go to hell. Heaven gates are open wide to those who will cry out to God for mercy and cry out to him for salvation and cry out for him to do that work in their life that will bring them to faith in Christ. That is our prayer for you. That's a prayer for everyone in this room. You don't know if you will live beyond today. You don't know. I don't want anybody to join the citizens of Sodom and Hades. We have a wonderful Savior who's given us a wonderful salvation, and we give praise to him. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.